0: Get ready to hear the truth about America on a show that's not immune to the facts with your host, Dan Bongino. All right. Welcome to the Dan Bongino Show. Producer Joe, how are you today? All set for a really big shoe, Dan. Owen, yeah, yeah, b- a go? big weekend for us. The Papadopoulos hey! interview we did on Friday evening. we sorry it took so long. Joe is, an, uh, is, a, is a perfectionist, though. And wanted to make sure the audio quality uh, was was tight. Yeah. So we got it out about nine p. Eastern on Friday. Um, but forgive us, folks. We don't do guests a lot. So well, uh, just, <laughs> just just to let you know, we started what about six o'clock? Six. Yeah. yeah. Four yeah. Or six. Your skills were tested yeah. to the limit. We were marrying yeah. up a number of different files, oh, different platforms. But Joe did not want uh, crappy audio, mm-hmm. and the interview is um revelatory i mean there are things in there uh you are not going to want to miss folks i'm going to cover a little bit of it later i got a ton of news to get through so let me dig right into it i appreciate you all tuning in uh, today's show brought to you by buddies at RX. You know how much I love my sponsors. I do not take on sponsors where I won't use the product or can't recommend the product highly. Wax RX is a perfect product for me. I had serious problems with this. I'm messing with you. When I was in the Secret Service jamming that earpiece in my ear all the time, I'd have this problem with earwax buildup. And, you, you know, you're not supposed to stick those, those uh, cotton swabs in your ear. That's not what they're for. They're for the outer ear. So, you know, you'd have to go to the doctor and things like that to get it out, which is terrible. Wax RX isn't the sexiest product, but it will help you deal with earwax buildup. Here's a customer review we saw, and help you avoid expensive trips to doctors to do so. I used to have to go to the doctor twice a year to get rid of my rid of my stubborn, hardened earwax. With my rising cost of healthcare, healthcare and thus the double deductible, I'd have to spend sixty dollars per visit, one hundred twenty dollars per year to treat my ears. Now I can do it myself with Wax RX and a significant savings. That also doesn't require me to miss a half a day of work. Thank you, WaxRx. Right now, you can try the WaxRx system. It's really good. You'd be surprised what comes out of your ears, folks. By typing in GoWaxRx.com. That's GoWaxRx.com. Use offer code Dan, my first name, at checkout for free shipping. Don't wait. You have no idea what you might be missing because of inner earwax. Who knows? It might just change your life. Go to GoWaxRx.com. Offer code Dan. Thanks for supporting our sponsors. We really appreciate it. All right. A couple notes here. First, just a, a, a big thank you to all of you that donated to the family of an American patriot right. who has since passed Colin Johnson, a Secret yes. Service agent friend of mine, a Marine, a warrior, and a patriot who was taken from us way too early due to pancreatic cancer. You all are amazing. I have the greatest audience ever. And I'm telling you when I say I have not met every one of you, but I've corresponded with a lot of you over email and Twitter. I love you. I love you. I mean it in the real, like, biblical love sense. I'm not a preacher, man, but you all are amazing, good-hearted people. Some of the notes you left on the GoFundMe page... I don't need any of the credit, by the way, please. But really, I mean it. I just want to take care of the family and help out. But some of the notes you left on the GoFundMe page for Colin Johnson, which is in my show notes from the Friday show, were just incredible. So thank you. You donated a tremendous amount of money. You're the best audience in the business. Um, Now, on a little bit of a... I, I, I don't want to get ranty on this. I want to handle this a little more reasonably, but I just want to address a few things on elections in the media because something happened this morning that uh, although it's about me, folks, um, I, I don't, I try not to bring up like Twitter fights about me if they don't have some, you know, this, is some, this isn't the Dan Bongino rant hour, but something happened this morning. And I just want to point out to you why so many Americans are furious um, at the media and how they pretend to be journalists when in fact they're not, they're activists. Just be honest, right? I'm not a journalist. I don't pretend to be. I no. appreciate facts. But I, I'm an I'm a conservative and an activist at heart. So I was on Fox and Friends this morning and I was discussing the elections. Um, I th- I thought in a very fair minded way, I pointed out uh, what and, and I'll get into this in a second. I think three races that'll be indicative of how the country's going to go in the midterms. And I'll get to those in a second and why they matter. Uh, but I thought I made a pretty reasoned analysis based on some polling, some of the things we've been told by the Democrats about, oh, Hispanic voters are going to come out in a rebellion against Donald Trump and that's just not happening. So what happens? I get off the air and immediately Philip Bump, fake journalist, um, you know, uh, complete zero from the Washington Post, decides to take like a, a cheap shot at me, but he disguises it, Joe, in the, form, in the tweet, he writes, you know, Dan Bongino, a quote, former police officer commenting on the midterms. In other words, like I'm not qualified. So, okay, fair enough. So, I replied back on a, on a Twitter uh, and I said to him, you know, it's, what's interesting is I'm proud to be a police officer and I am, but I actually had the the balls to run for office yeah. while you sit behind a desk and pontificate. So, then his partner at the Washington Post, Aaron Blake, piles on and said, well, they should have chironed him. You know, the little one lower third of the screen? They should have chironed him. Three time failed congressional candidate. Folks, listen, I lost. <laughs> I lost. I ran. I ran. About this. Yeah. Yeah, I ran for office. I lost. There's no silver medals. No. I'm not a victim. I'm not a snowflake. I didn't lose, but, you know, I lost, but not, there's no silver lining. When you run for office and lose, you lose. Right. But folks, my point isn't to make this about me. It's to show you how these media guys who've never run for office at all, at all, they were never cops. They were never law enforcement. Most of them never even had real jobs. These are the media people who, when you do commentary on Fox, despite the fact that Joe Joe knew me when I ran for office the first time, ladies and gentlemen, whether you win or lose, when you run for office three times, you learn things. You learn things about voter outreach, volunteer stuff. You know, we almost pulled off a huge upset in Maryland 6. We learned how to appeal to suburban voters, how to appeal to Mountain Maryland, how to appeal to the exurbs, the suburbs, issues that mattered how to get out there, how to do every, you may laugh, you may, how to do everything from sign wave, a sign wave, what do you do, just wave a sign, no, there are places to go where you can go, and then you can later on use <laughs> QR codes, and and, and POM cards, and figure out where your outreach is, the point I'm trying to make is, running for office gives you valuable experience, but it goes to show you how these media types, this disparity in America, how they're the talkers, they're never the doers, they talk about cop issues, they talk about law enforcement issues, about economic issues, about healthcare issues, about candidates running for office yet they've many of them have never been cops have never been law enforcement many haven't been in the military some have they have almost no experience in private business no experience in healthcare at all yet they're the ones who sit behind a desk and we're supposed to sit here and listen to them pontificate now these two morons deleted their tweets Aaron Blake and Philip Bump but it just goes to show you again not to drag on about this but folks this is why I can't encourage you enough to entirely discount what these media people have to say unless they actually have some experience on their field of commentary. Why would you listen to a media person's analysis of Obamacare who's never been in healthcare, doesn't understand healthcare economics? These people can't even do journalism, and we're asking them to do economics and healthcare? Give me a break, please. If it means anything, just for the record, I have known you as long as we've been doing this and before. I've never once heard you. Ever, ever make up some weenie excuse about why you didn't win an election. Never No, no ever. and Joe's been privy to some very private conversations. Yes, sir. I have you been, I, lost. Never. I never filed a lawsuit or no. matter of fact, the race I lost by one point. Yeah. I was encouraged by a couple of prominent conservatives due to some anomalies in the balloting in Frederick, uh, yes. in the city of Frederick. I remember. I was encouraged. Remember a be yeah. oh, file a lawsuit. You could still win this race. Folks, it's over. I lost. That's fine. You know, you take your your shots. Don't ever be a victim. Don't right. ever be a right. thing. You know, right. you get up, you dust yourself off, you get your ass off the mat, yep. and you go back and you find another way to make a difference. Joe and I tried a lot of things. We tried different formats. We got into the podcast thing. We did mm-hmm. conservative commentary. I wrote some books. I choose to stay involved. I go out, I speak up for candidates I believe in. You know, folks, a little bit of grit matters. And these media people don't have grit. You know, I ran into a guy. If, if folks, please just bear with me. This, this is important. I, I'm not going to say where or why because I don't want to give him away. And he didn't give me permission to talk about this. I, I don't think he'll mind, but it doesn't matter. You're not going to find out who he is anyway. But I was in a place and I was, I ran into a guy. He's a friend and he's an addict. He's an addict. I know, you know, Joe, you were in the music field for a while. Yeah. It's a big problem in that field, you know? Yeah. yeah. He's an addict. And I had a conversation, he's fallen off the wagon again. It's like the third or fourth time, right. but he's a good guy. He's a good guy with a deep soul and he's a deep thinker. And I, I just, I see the scars, man. I see the thousand mile stare in this guy's eyes sometimes. And the fact that he thought he was beaten and he was back again. The place I saw him is key. I, I don't really want to say, but the place I ran into is key. Cause it says to me, he's really trying. You know, to all you people out there, all you folks out there, you listeners and otherwise, you know, people you know out there who are addicts and others, but who've lived hard lives, who've made real mistakes, who've lost races, who've been fired from jobs, who've gotten into drugs they shouldn't have gotten into and had a hard time. I care about you, man. I care about your opinion. Your opinion matters to me. You have lived through the school of hard knocks. You got a mop. You've swept floors. You've cleaned floors. You've cleaned toilet bowls. You know, you've worked. You've moved boxes. You've, you you know, you've got dirt under your fingernails. You've landscaped. You've worked for a living. You've hung sheetrock. You built things. You build houses. You've done stuff. You've actually been out there in the real world. You've made real mistakes and you've learned from them. To all you people out there re- recovering and in that process of recovery, know that a lot of people like us love you, man, and we're there for you. We understand that, you know, it's, it's hard to get through that. But your experiences matter. Not to get off track, but that just goes to me to show the disparity between real Americans, people who've had problems with drugs, with alcohol, people who've worked, people who've been fired, people who've had to get up, people who've opened businesses that have failed, restaurants that if I had hadn't make it, you poured your life savings into it. I care more about your, quote, journalism. Then I do theirs because your experiences matter. You want to explain the Trump effect? That's the Trump effect. This is a guy who's had to build stuff. He may be worth a lot of money, but he had to produce something. He had up when he committed to a building, the building had to be built. It wasn't talking. It wasn't sitting behind a desk at the Washington Post with your stupid detached commentary commenting on elections you've never run in. It was real. They had to actually build the building. Americans out there who had real problems. You want to write about the opioid crisis? How about someone who's lived it? How about this cat I ran into this week who's, again, trying to fight back and get his life back? I care about his opinion on it. How easy is it to get? Why did he get it? Why did he feel so broken he needed to fall back again? What's going on? I care about their opinion, not these media people. They are completely detached. You want to explain away the CNN sucks, Chance? Maybe that'll help if you were even remotely interested taking pot shots are you serious whatever all right folks couple things in the election i want to get to papadopoulos after this um so a couple races i want you to pay attention to i mentioned them before but they're important uh number one Will Hurd's race in Texas 23. Uh, we have been told by the Democrats that, you know, Hispanics, uh, they, they treat them, of course, like automatons, like robots. You are yeah. not. You are God's children. You are all individuals. It's sad we even have to say that. But the Democrats treat you like a bunch of robots. Um, Hispanic voters. Will Hurd's, uh, lives, is resides in southern Texas, a district dominated by Hispanic voters. He is a Republican running for reelection. He is up dramatically in a race that has gone both ways, Democrat and Republican in the past in the presidential. If this blue wave, uh, and when I say wave, I mean 28 or 30 seats or more is going to happen, then that seat would most certainly be going for the Democrat. Secondly, a race down here in Southern Florida, Carlos Cabello. Again, are these the greatest conservatives in the world, folks? I'm not saying that. I'm simply suggesting to you they are far better than the alternative. And if we lose the House, we lose the chairmanships. these It's a simple vote. Straight red. There's no question. I don't care how bad your congressional rep is. They promise you they will be no worse than the Democrats running Congress. They will be a, a, a it will be a disaster. You have uh, Elvira Salazar running down here in Southern Florida, largely Hispanic district, a lot of Venezuelan voters, a lot of Cuban voters. She's a Republican. She's running against a Clintonista, Donna Shalala, for an open seat. Ileana Ross Lathan's seat. This seat was won overwhelmingly by Hillary Clinton. Yet Salazar is very competitive, which suggests to you what you already know. Hispanic voters are not robots. Um, Brian Mudd, who hosts a local radio station down here, was on Fox News this weekend and made a great point. What Democrats are blinded by with their identity politics love affair, Joe, is that black voters and Hispanic voters are not robots. These are sentient, free thinking children of God who think for themselves and their families. His lumping in Hispanic voters from California, New York and Florida is one one of the most racist things you can do. Uh, They're all the same. Uh, Who's they? Who's they? They're not all the same dopes. These are free thinking people. My wife's a Hispanic voter. I promise she didn't vote Democrat. Hispanic voters in Florida, Joe, are individuals. They have individual stories. Many of them came from Venezuela, where socialism broke them and their families and their businesses. Many of them came from Cuba, where the Castro regime broke them, their businesses and their families. These are free-thinking people. They don't think like Democrat identity politics teach them to. Keep your eyes on those two races. It's not if it, 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 Heard I think, will win. Salazar, even if she loses, pay attention at slim margin. Another race that I ran in, and I want to just kind of parlay this after this back and forth with these two idiots from the Washington Post mm-hmm. who seem to think me running for office, the fact that I lost, uh, means nothing, that the fact that they write about it means more. I want you to pay attention to the Maryland 6th District. Joe's intimately familiar with it. So when one I ran in. Mm-hmm. Used to be held by a Republican. They redistricted it. It's now overwhelmingly Democrat. It's about a Democrat plus six district. Oh, dude. I nearly won the race. I lost by one. The two other candidates who ran in it lost by 20 and 15. Why does this race matter? Folks, it's not about me. One, the race will be over early. So you'll get a good barometer. Maryland Congressional District 6. I'll say this. I don't think the candidate in the Republican side is going to win. I hope she does. I don't think she will based on what I my sense of the district but pay attention to the outcome why? Because it will be indicative of the fight going on across the country in these districts that, uh, uh, that in these competitive house districts judge Joe knows well mm-hmm. uh, the Maryland 6 is two separate places. It is western mountain Maryland and it is the DC suburbs. <laughs> the reason my race was close this is important. And the other two weren't is we managed to get out and maximize the exurbs and the rural and mountain voters in Maryland. The turnout was phenomenal. Yes, sir. It was incredible. And the suburban D.C. anger at the Republican Party was not as pronounced back then because it was a rain tax in Maryland. And a lot of the suburban Democrats in the D.C., suburbs didn't turn out and vote because they were tired of Democrat governor Martin O'Malley and the rain tax. The reason I bring this up now is Donald Trump has brought in a new batch of working class, former Democrat mountain Maryland exurb voters in Washington County, Allegheny County and Garrett in Maryland. Are those new voters in the midterms that Donald Trump brought in enough to offset a lot of this suburban anger that some suburban uh, voters have at the Trump administration ginned up by the media. That Maryland district is indicative of this. If uh, if the candidate there, the Republican candidate even, loses by even three to four points or wins. I mean, I like to see her win, but if she loses by even three to four points in a race that was lost in the past by 15 and 20, It should say to you that the Republicans will have a pretty decent night because it's indicative of this fight. We're having some problems in the suburbs, but we are kicking butt in the exurbs outside of the suburbs and the rural areas and mountain areas where new Trump voters are coming. Does that make sense, Joe? Oh, yeah. That that Maryland six race has been completely ignored by a lot of people, and I cannot understand Mm -hmm. why. I almost won it. I lost by one. I won on election day. We lost on the absentee count. Pay attention, folks. That race, I'm telling you, will be a bellwether for what's going on around the country, and it'll close super early. One more thing on this, and I want to move on. I have a great article from Rasmussen up at the show notes today. I also have a great article covering the George Papadopoulos interview written up by Matt. For those of you who don't have the time to listen to it, it's wonderful. Please do it. He did great. Um, It covers the highlights. Matt Palumbo wrote a piece up on Gino.com, which I will put in the show notes today as well, so don't forget but one more thing, an article by Rasmussen saying, "Is there a silent red wave coming?" Now, I, I've got to tell you, I, I made my predictions. I, I stand by and We'll see what happens. I think we add three to five houses, uh, uh, seats. Excuse me, Senate seats, and I think we hold the House by a slim margin, two to three, maybe even one. I'm optimistic. But predictions are predictions. I'm not uh, a fortune teller. I'm not Dan Stradamus. Uh, I, I can only tell you based on what I'm seeing with Hispanic voters and the big, heavy turnout. But here's another reason I think Republicans stand the chance of holding the House. The Rasmussen piece is telling, Joe. Rasmussen doesn't mess around. This isn't some highly partisan outfit. It's a, They're a fair shooter when it comes to polling. The article says, hey, are we off on these polls again? And they point out some fascinating numbers, Joe. I just want to read this to you. Mm. It talks about some of the failures in 2016 based on Democrats' willingness to say who they're going to vote for in contrast to Republicans who can be a little more reserved and and not tell pollsters the truth. (laughs) So here's a quote from the piece. The latest Rasmussen Reports National Telephone and Online Survey finds that, this is important, folks, 60% of likely Democratic voters say they are more likely to let others know how they intend to vote this year. 60% of Dems are, in other words, will tell the truth, right? This compares to only 49% of Republicans and 40% of voters not affiliated with either major political party. In other words, independents, non-affiliateds, and Republicans are less willing to tell pollsters who they're going to vote for. Now, he goes on. One more paragraph. He describes how this was one of the failures in the 2016 election, too. In other words, you call Democrats and be like, yeah, I'm voting Democrat. You call Republicans, "Ah, I don't know, or maybe they lie because they're just not willing to tell people who they're voting for. Uh, Joe, you think that would cause a problem with the polls? Oh, yeah, daddy. Yeah, yeah, you better believe it. Of course it will. Yeah, if you get a bunch of Republicans who don't want to tell you the truth, it's going to screw your polls up. Here (laughs) it goes on. He says in August 2016, 52% of Democrats were more likely to let others know how they intended to vote compared to 46% of Republicans and 34% of unaffiliated voters. Some analysts before and after Trump's upset victory Suggested that most pollsters missed his hidden support among voters fearful of criticism who were unwilling to say where they stood. Folks, again, predictions are predictions. um, You know, I'm doing the best I can based on the data out there. I'm only suggesting to you that places like Rasmussen, who have no skin in the partisan game, but they do have skin in the prediction game, would not put an article out there. If there wasn't some credence to it, I strongly encourage you to read it. So although I don't think there's going to be a red wave, we are going to, I'm pretty sure we're going to lose seats. There is a slim chance we hold on to the house. I think that's what I believe. I, that's what I believe is going to happen. I shouldn't say slim because I don't fight I it, believe it's slim it was. I think we're going to hold on to the house by a slim margin. I think that has a lot to do with it. And it parlays perfectly into what I just told you about my old race in Maryland sixth, how many mountain voters, exurb voters, Farm voters, rural voters are going to turn out to offset the flow we may see from the suburbs and the cities, especially in a district like Maryland 6, which has both of those. Fascinating, fascinating question. Um, Okay. Uh, Today's show also brought to you by buddies at iTarget. The iTarget Pro system is the best system out there, hands down, for improving your marksmanship. Listen, safety and marksmanship. Those are the two critical things when owning a firearm, obviously. I target the iTarget system gives you the ability uh, to use both of those things safety wise because you're not firing live rounds one of the best ways to improve your marksmanship is to do what we call dry firing dry firing is when you safely unload a weapon you check it you check it twice you check it three times there's absolutely no room for error go to the range always point in a safe direction and you pull the trigger on a safely unloaded weapon well why would you do that because you get to practice your grip, your sight alignment, your sight picture, all of the key critical components of good marksmanship. While you're not having to worry about the recoil from the round, you don't have to blow off a lot of ammo. You don't have to, It's an empty, empty firearm. The problem is you have no idea where that round would have gone because it's empty. iTarget solved that problem for you. They will send you a laser round. There is no manipulation to your firearm necessary. Whatever you have, a nine millimeter... 40 cal whatever you have they will send you a laser round you will safely insert in a safely unloaded weapon and it comes with a target and it works with a phone app it's like a video game for your firearm to practice your marksmanship god forbid you're involved in a self-defense situation you're going to need that it will mark you where your rounds uh, uh, despite the fact that it's just a laser round it will emit a laser and you'll see where your rounds would have gone is the best system out there remember competitive shooters dry fire 10 times more than they live fire these are people do this for a living Folks, you'll be uh, knocking wings off a fruit fly soon, and you'll need that in a self-defense scenario. God forbid you're ever involved in one. Go to itargetpro.com. That's the letter itargetpro.com. One more time, letter itargetpro.com. Itargetpro.com. Use promo code DAN to get 10% off. Go check it out. You will not regret it. The reviews on the product are simply spectacular. Okay. Okay. Um, I got some other things to get to, but I want to nail this first. The Papadopoulos interview, just uh, covering on this as well, uh, doing a, a brief recap. So what you can expect if you decide to go back and listen to it. Uh, it's on our, uh, if you subscribe on iTunes, on SoundCloud, on iHeart, it's free. Uh, you, my, the subscribing to my podcast is free. We really appreciate it. It will be there for you on the feed. It's also up at Bongino.com. There were some really interesting revelations during the interview. Oh ho. ho, ho. Yeah. Let me say first, I want to thank George for coming on his at one point during the interview. He makes a a statement about FISA, about a potential FISA warrant against him. Now, let me I'll give you a little background. George says right around the time this was all going on this summer of 2016, he was contacted by reporters. He didn't say who I probed them a little bit for it. But fair enough. It's you know, he was nice enough to come on. I'm not going to push him on that. He says he was contacted by reporters from outlets we would know. I'm assuming some prominent liberal outlets. I don't know who they are. It could be the Post, the Times. I have no idea. He doesn't say. But he says he was contacted by reporters right around the time all these leaks were going on about a FISA warrant on him. Now, ladies and gentlemen, why does this matter? Because nobody's, this is not, this is news. We have been told that the spying operation of the Donald Trump team, Joe, so far was limited basically to Carter Page, right? At least when it comes to the formal FISA application process going through the courts to get a warrant against what now looks like an innocent American citizen in Carter Page. It makes me question how many FISA warrants were out there. Now, we do know that the FBI applied for FISA's and were denied. The key question here, and you know maybe we'll get back we'll get George back for episode two at some point, Joe. I have a, l- a number of follow-up questions too. We just wanted to wrap it up in an hour. Mm-hmm. Uh, to give you time to listen to it and digestible nuggets here and it was so much info in it w- was he one of the fisa warrants that was denied in other words did they try to get a fisa on him that was denied which would make a lot of sense why because as john solomon is written in a lot of his hill pieces joe at the hill.com john solomon i've told you from the beginning i think knows the whole story. John has had this big eagle-eye view of this from the start. He even said it on Hannity one night. He said he thinks George Papadopoulos was the initial, like, hot target of the investigation. Look, we got this guy. He's got these connections to, you know, the Middle Eastern, the energy industry over there. He's been involved with the Trump team. I think we could tie him up with the Russians. He thinks at one point the Papadopoulos angle dies because either they're listening in on him or whatever. They do this setup with Mifsud, and it doesn't work out. They don't get Papadopoulos. In other words, they try to entrap him, and it doesn't work. So Papadopoulos thinks stats explains show, which makes perfect sense, folks. This makes perfect sense now. That explains the gap between the initial, what I believe, entrapment operation against Papadopoulos in April of 2016 and the FBI's failure to interview him until next year. So Solomon's theory was they start with Carter Page. They realize they've got nothing, Joe. They've got nothing. They've got nothing but a, a bag of a dog food. Nothing. It's air yeah. popcorn. There's nothing there. They move on from Papadopoulos. They think, now we got someone, Joe. Who creeps onto the screen with them? Carter Page. What's the problem? The Carter Page investigation through FISA turns out to be a dog, too. Ah. <laughs> yes. So what do they do? They go back to Papadopoulos in January of the next year, like, hey guys, bad news. This entrapment thing isn't working. We tried Papa <laughs> D. We tried listen, this is important. We tried a FISA on Papa D. We didn't get it. We finally get the FISA on Carter Page, thinking now we got them hook, line, and sinker. We get nothing there either. We better go back to Papa D. <laughs> It makes all the sense in the world now how this was the worst entrapment operation in the history of humankind. The stupid was legendary in this thing. (laughs) Now, it also makes sense. The interview, um, uh, uh, the arrest at the airport, the arrest at the airport, which happens months after the interview now makes sense. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So he's interviewed in January 2017. I th- Again, I, th- I think Solomon's right. I think they start targeting Papadopoulos. They realize they've got nothing. They probably get rejected for a FISA. They come back to Papadopoulos in January. They interview him. They realize they've still got nothing. They probably try to flip back to someone else. Ah, wait, wait, wait. Don't go anywhere. This is going to be important. This will come up again in a minute. They try to move on to someone else. You're tracking, Joe? Yeah, yeah, let's, yeah. Let's get Papa D. Didn't work out. Okay, we'll move on to Carter Page. That didn't work out. Back to Papa D in January. That doesn't work out either. No. They go to someone else. I'll get to the someone else thing in a minute because that came up in the interview too. You got to listen to it. The someone else doesn't work out either. Why, folks? Because there's no collusion. This is not a hard thing to figure out. You can't invent a crime that didn't happen. So in... Right around the summertime, they realize we better go back to Papa D again, probably to shut him up, either to shut him up or in one desperate last attempt, try to shake his tree and get some information out of it that they didn't have before. But there's no information to give. Papadopoulos was set up. How does this tie into the interview? First, he brought up the FISA thing, the, the, uh, the fact that uh, he, there may have been a FISA and it may have been denied. That makes sense. It says that Papadopoulos was, in fact, you know, uh, patient zero in this case. But it also explains away the airport scenario. Joe, wasn't that fascinating? Oh, man. I was. That I was, was like, the best part of yeah. the interview. My balls are huge. I know. Me too. Yeah. Me and Joe. We, I, honestly, folks, we could have done that interview for two hours just out of respect for George's time and Joe's I and mean, everyone else and yours. We tried to sum it up in an hour. Like I said, I'll try to have him back for part two because there's so a bunch of questions we didn't even answer. But he describes his arrest at Dulles Airport returning from overseas. He describes it in pretty intricate detail and the details matter. I ask him some critical questions that ironically, according to the interview, his lawyer hasn't told him yet. But it explains the targeting of Papadopoulos, then moving on, then coming back to him every time the FBI gets desperate. The arrest at the airport He's returning, and I believe he's set up with this cash exchange, which he describes in even more intricate detail with this guy Charles Toel. Someone gives him ten thousand dollars overseas. This guy Charles Toel, in a, in, a, in a hotel scene that he describes, you cannot miss. Listen to the show: how frightened he was, and how he thought this was like, he was going to mm-hmm. die in this thing. Someone gives him ten thousand dollars. Conveniently, the exact amount of money he'd have to declare when entering the United States. And if he doesn't, he could be in a lot of trouble, right? George doesn't bring the $10,000 back. He leaves, he senses something's wrong according to him, and he leaves the $10,000 overseas where it's still there. I believe this may be part of the setup. He describes coming out of the airport in Dulles, again, in really incredible detail, and he thinks the bureau guys, he sees the bureau guys like ruffling through his stuff. I think they're looking for the money. Why? Why? Because, folks, at this point, I think they know this investigation. Remember, this is 2017 now. Trump's the president. Now they're in cleanup on aisle four mode. They realize collusion is a myth, that they have been chasing the white rabbit forever and nothing has happened. They get it. They know it's over. Now they have to shut everybody up. They need to get Papadopoulos and get him to work and be a cooperator for something, anything. So they go to the airport, Joe, with every expectation that they're going to find Papadopoulos with what? The (laughs) the money. Money. The dough. Joe's making the uh, index finger to thumb (laughs) signs when when you, you know, give me the dough, right? They think they're going to find Papa Dizzle with the money. Papa D doesn't have the money. He left the money behind. So the FBI guys are panicked. Here's my... Now, there are so many suspicious things about this interaction, the way he describes it. Here's number one. Having done and been involved in a lot of cases, some of them which involved people coming from overseas, or at, 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 I should say, I was not directly involved. I'd never, I'd speak with precision here on this. It's important. Having been involved in a couple of cases that involved a lot of overseas travel, I'm familiar with how the process works. I'll leave it at that. The Customs and Border Protection guys are typically the ones that will assist in any kind of a... Any kind of a, 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 an airport like a let, let me explain this, but I'm not doing a good job, but it's important because it explains how anomalous this whole thing is. There's a manifest for these flights. If the Bureau or the DEA or someone wants to arrest someone coming off a plane overseas, Joe, back into the United States, they will typically work with the customs and border guys and the customs and border guys may be there for first contact, typically are. Why they weren't there for this. Papadopoulos makes no mention of being confronted by the Customs and Border guys. Maybe I'll get some more detail on this if we do another interview. He does make mention of being confronted by these FBI guys in suits. Why would the Bureau guys leave the CBP guys out of it? Why? Were they trying to keep this thing on the hush-hush? Why were they looking for the money? Were they concerned that he wasn't going to declare it? Were they going to use it? Now, here's my guess at what happened, folks. They need to keep this thing on the total hush-hush, right? They probably have a complaint drawn up in advance. It's like a charging document. George Papadopoulos did X, Y, Z. Got it? They can't swear to a complaint, Joe, about the $10,000. Why? Why? Because they don't know he has it. They can't go in front of a judge and say George Papadopoulos came back to Dulles with $10,000 because they haven't gone to the airport yet. But I'll bet, here's how it works in the federal system. I'll bet they had this thing typed up on a Word document sitting on the desk of a United States attorney, which is fair. That's You don't have to swear to it. It didn't happen. Right. But to have a, a, you know, a summary of what you think, it's perfectly fair. You just scrap mm-hmm. it if it doesn't yeah. happen. It's not a big deal. It happens all the time. I guarantee you they had that waiting. Some kind of a, a, a charge on that $10,000. They had it waiting. They're looking for the money. They're getting ready to call that United States attorney working for the government. Hey, we got the money. Okay, let's get a judge on the phone. Let's swear to this arrest warrant right now. Well, what happens, folks? He doesn't have the money. <laughs> they don't have anything. It sounds to me like desperation time kicks in and they need to desperately kept shut this guy up. Why? Because they don't want Papadopoulos going to the media saying, I was confronted in the airport by the FBI. There's something <laughs> yeah. going. They want to shut this. That's the whole point. It's the cleanup operation. Clean up, Al-Four. You got it? Yo, they yeah. need to shut this guy down, but they don't have anything. The charge they probably already typed up for some kind of a a, a, a failure to uh, you know a failure to declare or some money laundering charge, or whatever it may be, isn't there. They panic. They probably go back to their January interview. They're like, listen, let's just get him on this false charges stuff where he gave the wrong date on Mifsud, which is the weakest. I'm telling you, charging people 1,001 false statements to the FBI on such a loose case like this that's supposed to be so important, Russian collusion says to me they had nothing. And at that point, they got desperate at the airport and desperately needed to shut this guy down. You know, when I, I, what tears me up is he tried to give the money back, and the guy said, no, you keep Great. it. I don't want it back. Excellent point. The guy who gives him the... Folks, if this doesn't, like, send your BS antenna through the roof. Dude. We're, I mean, we're missing a thousand things in this. I, me, yeah. Joe and I are just summarizing it, because it's a, a pre-election day, and I've got so much stuff to get across. You, you're missing... If you're not listening to this, you're... You're blowing it. It is such a good interview. Joe brings up a great point. The yeah. guy who gives him the $10,000 is Charles Tewheel, right? Yeah. Tewheel, by the way, denies any knowledge of, of of working with Intel or anything like that. But Tewheel is nervous, he says. He's sweating. Yep. Papadopoulos says he calls him and tells him, take the money back. And Tewheel says, I don't want it. Why <laughs> would you? Folks, come on. Let's be logical about this. If Papadopoulos' story is correct, and Tawil's giving him $10,000 to work in some consultant capacity, and the guy calls you back and says, I don't want to be a consultant, take your money, you say no? (laughs) Who is rich enough to, like, leave $10,000 as a tip for Papadopoulos? Right. Folks, does this make any sense? Joe's right. This is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. It's becoming clear to me that $10,000 was a setup. You get my point? They went to the airport thinking they were going to have him on mm. this ten grand, a failure to declare whatever it may be, some charge. They probably didn't get it. Then they're confused. They're panicked. They need to arrest this guy on something because they need to shut him up. They want to use him later on, use him as kind of a source inside the Trump team possibly. But to use him, you need some kind of substance-based charge, something that's going to threaten him with multiple years in jail, or whatever it may be. Oh, maybe we'll get him on some money laundering or bank fraud with this money. They don't have it. What do they do? Well, we got to arrest them on something, guys. We don't have anything. What are you going to arrest them for? Felonious Mopri in the umpteenth degree? (laughs) They don't have anything. So someone probably goes, hey, didn't he tell us the wrong date with that interview in January? Oh, let's get him on that. But that's not enough to incentivize the guy to flip. It makes perfect sense now. Two more takeaways from this. So it's clear to me now, again, they start with Papadopoulos. They got nothing. They move on to Carter Page. They got nothing on Page. They panic. They go back to Papadopoulos in January. They still got nothing. They move on again, only to come back to Papadopoulos later again in the summer to shut this guy up. Now it makes sense when Papadopoulos, right at the end of the interview, by the way, you know, drops a Moab on us in the interview. And he's like, hey, by the way, I think there was another spy in the Trump campaign. Wait, what? Now, he has tweeted this before, to be fair. So it's not. Didn't break on my show, but his description is fascinating. He says, I can't say who I think it was, but let me say this. I believe it was a low-level guy who was involved and embedded in the Trump campaign who may have been feeding information outside of the Trump campaign to some of these same entities that were targeting Trump. Folks, that's a fascinating revelation because it makes perfect sense in the timeline. Entrap George Papadopoulos. Doesn't work. Move on to Page. Uh Uh-oh, back to Papadopoulos. Page didn't work out. Papadopoulos in January. This isn't working out either. We got nothing but a false statements charge. He wasn't involved in collusion. Let's go to our guy, secret guy in the campaign. Now, you may say, oh, uh, Papadopoulos is just saying that. Really? That's funny because Glenn Simpson, the Fusion GPS guy who testified under oath up on Capitol Hill, said under oath that there was another source inside the Trump campaign. Is Papadopoulos really crazy? Is Glenn Simpson crazy too? Wait till we find out who that person is. How many people did they try to take down with this thing, folks? How many? It is unbelievable. How de- Listen to the interview. You will be blown away. All right, I got one more takeaway. It was a guy who emails me often who knows his stuff, does a really good job. And uh, he brought up a question uh, I I failed to ask, but I want to follow up with with George because it's very telling. All right, before I get to that, finally, today's show brought to you by our buddies at Brickhouse Nutrition. Love Brickhouse, one of my original sponsors. They have the finest nutrition supplements on the market. The people who uh, develop their products there are top notch. The the doctor they have working there really, really knows his stuff. This business matters to him. One of the best products uh, they have right now is Field of Greens. It is tremendous. It is not... Now, Field of Greens, uh, let me tell you what it isn't first. You hear a lot of these commercials out there, the fruit and vegetable powder or fruit and vegetable pill. You get your fruits and vegetables on a pill. Great. You know what a lot of that stuff is? It's extract. It's crap. It's garbage. Field of Greens is different. Field of Greens is actual food. Now, it's in a powder form, but it is ground up wholesome, fresh fruits and vegetables. It's not extract. This is actual food. They grind up these healthy fruits and vegetables into this great tasting powder. The fruits give it a beautiful berry type taste. Tastes delicious. You put it in water, put it in juice, like put it in green tea, V eight, whatever you want to put it in. It tastes great. You take a scoop. I take two scoops a day, morning and night, and you will never feel better. It is your fruit and vegetable insurance. We all know voluminous consumption of fruits and vegetables is the key to good health, cognitive health, your your muscle health, your tendon health, your brain, uh, your brain, or your skin. You will look better. My mother in law loves this stuff. She thinks it makes me look younger too. Which is she gets a kick out of. It. Go give it a shot. Go to BrickHouseNutrition.com slash Dan. That's BrickHouseNutrition.com slash Dan. Pick up a bottle of Fielder Greens today. Send us your reviews. You're going to love it. BrickHouseNutrition.com slash Dan. Send us your review of Fielder Greens. Okay, one last point on this, and I'm going to move on to a couple other things uh, that are really important. This, we got the election tomorrow. Vote, 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 vote. No excuses. I said to George, we opened up the interview by saying, describe to us who set up this interview at Mifsud. Mifsud's the Maltese professor who tells Papadopoulos about the Russian dirt on Hillary. It starts this whole thing, right? That happens in April of 2016. Mm -hmm. I said to Papadopoulos, was this interview recorded? And I asked him some key questions. When you met with Mifsud... Did he ask you to move to a quiet spot? Did he put a phone in front of you? Did he sit closer to you? than you know, when men uh, get, to, get together for a business meeting, they don't sit typically right next to each other. I right? think you sit across from each other so you can look at each other, right? Right, right? Did he angle his seat over closer to you? Was he acting suspiciously? And Papadopoulos gave some interesting answers to that. But he seems to think he was recorded by Mifsud. A question I got for George. George, if you, I know you listen to the show. Maybe if you can answer on Twitter, it would be really helpful. Did Mifsud pick the spot? Who picked the spot to meet? Great question. I'm horrified I didn't ask it. In other words, Joe, if you're setting me up, right? Yeah. And you're working for the CIA or mm-hmm. the FBI, and you're recording me, and there's going to be physical surveillance in that place. Mm-hmm. It's pretty important that you pick the spot, right? Yeah, I pick the asset. Yep. I, yeah, I you it, yeah, you do. You so people can get in there in advance. Yeah. They can position some cameras. Yeah. Now. The reason they, I, uh, that, that I bring this up is, as I said during the interview, there are multiple times in, this, uh, in charging documents, investigative documents, where the conversation with Mifsud appears to have been monitored by people, where mm-hmm. they talk about like, oh, Mifsud and pop it up, they seem uninterested. Well, seem, what does that mean? Seem uninterested? they said, who told them that? Was somebody watching them? Now, if this thing was recorded, the Mifsud-Papadopoulos meeting, and somebody has the tapes. Again, it's all in the internet. I don't want to keep hammering this, but it's so good. I say to him at one point, Joe, remember this? If we have the tapes, that is the case is over. Yeah. Because the liberal, Democrat, and media case against Papadopoulos is he meets with this Maltese professor, Mifsud, who tells him that they have Russian dirt on Hillary. The media's case is that this guy's a Russian asset. But folks, if he's a Russian asset and the interview is transcribed and recorded, how the hell did we get a copy of it in the United States intelligence community if the Russians were colluding to take down our election? Have you asked yourself even that basic question? Ooh. Ooh. Do you understand the recording is everything? If our IC intelligence community and the FBI has a transcript of a meeting with Ms. Sood, why are you not asking yourself the question, How the hell did we get a copy of that? I thought that was the Russians doing it. So either the Russians told Mifsud to go recruit Papadopoulos and tell him about dirt on Hillary, recorded it, and then gave it to the U.S. government. Why? I have no idea. Be the dumbest spies ever. Or we got the recording because Mifsud's connections were to Western intelligence or friendlies who turned it over. And not to the Russians, folks. Does that make sense? That's why this question of who picked the location, which is a good one, is so critical. Who picked the location? I got to get that from George, because if Mifsud or the people who set it up, who Papadopoulos is, is seems confident now we're working with Western intelligence. If they picked it, that's just another nail in the coffin that Mifsud was not a Russian asset. He was working with friendlies. Why would we have a recording, Joe? Does that make sense? Perfect. I do know during the interview we hammered it, but seriously, mm-hmm. like, why would we have a recording if the Russians sent an asset to recruit Papadopoulos? Why would they give us the recording? Does that make any sense to you at all? You may say, oh, maybe they want to admit to it. They haven't admitted to it. Putin and the Russians, listen, I'm not, they're not our friends. They are known liars. Let's be clear on this. But Putin and the Russians have denied trying to infer- interfere in our election process. They did. Points that they did. I'm not saying, I'm just suggesting to you, why would they deny it and then turn over a tape of them trying to interfere in our election? Does that make any sense? Uh, no. We would only have a transcript if there is one, if Ms. Sud was working with friendlies. That's why conspiracy Looney Tunes like that Seth Abramson, they can't explain this stuff away. They just can't. If there's a transcript out there, how the hell is that transcript? How did it get to our guys? Who picked the spot? Critical stuff. All right. A couple more things I want to get to because it's important. Just uh, quickly on the Saturday Night Live debacle. Uh, There was a comedian on Saturday Night Live, Pete Davidson, who uh, did a skit, a remarkably unfunny skit, poking fun at Dan Crenshaw, a Republican congressional candidate who lost an eye uh, in in, in battle. He is an American patriot and a hero who is running for Congress. Crenshaw. Uh, the joke was pretty horrible. He he shows a picture of Crenshaw, who now wears an eye patch. He lost his right eye. Uh, and he said that this guy looks like a hitman in a porn movie. Uh, that was bad enough. But then the uh, comedian on Saturday Night Live follows it up by saying, all right, we know he lost his eye in war or whatever. Um, folks, listen, I'm not a snowflake out there. I have a generally high tolerance uh, for comedy. I get it, Um, you know. People make bad jokes, and uh, I don't think society should be overly sensitive about what comedians say. They're comedians for a reason. The problem I have with this joke is, you know what, folks? There are some red lines in a decent society, and and I I, I appreciate Crenshaw. Crenshaw is a patriot and a hero, and he went on Fox and Friends right before me. I, I you know, when you're on the air, Joe, yes, you well know, you can you listen in your earpiece to the segment before you. Mm-hmm. Crenshaw said the right thing. He goes, I'm not demanding an apology. I'm, you know, if they want to apologize, then do it sincerely. If you don't, don't. Amen. God bless you, brother. You're the hero in this, and you come out of this looking like exactly who you are an American patriot and a hero. They look small, but I'm not demanding, and one, nobody cares what I demand, but I've got a big enough audience, I think, this say, don't demand anything. Saturday Night Live looks this small, and they look like idiots. If they want to apologize, let them apologize. But I'm telling you, in the eyes of the American people, in the eyes of the American people, that was a disgraceful episode, and I told the story. I just want to repeat it very quickly on Fox Morning. Why this is why this is one of those red lines, just out of a sense of dignity, you don't cross. You know, one of my last trips as a Presidential Protection Division uh, Secret Service agent was overseas to Afghanistan with Barack Obama. It was on my birthday, uh, I remember, and it was uh, it was an interesting trip. Um, it was a dangerous trip. A lot went on. I'm, you know, I'm not going to go into, the, the, in my, if you buy my first book, it's I go into a long explanation about what happened there. It was actually quite interesting. But this point I want to make here is at one point we were on Bagram and there's this medical facility there. And I was with Obama and I'm the lead. So they're going to me for everything. And they said, we want to go over to the hospital. They want to pin, they want to do a purple heart ceremony. And I went over. But before we went over, there was this like gym area and I'm in the gym and I'm talking to this, uh, this officer who was in charge of this unit. And I just asked him, I said, I was curious because we were going to the hospital, but we were meeting with these other guys in the gym and it was just, it wasn't on the sequence of events as I had anticipated, Joe, everything in the secret service is drawn down to the, like the second. So the commanding officer, I said to him, why are we meeting with these soldiers? And, um, there were like 16 of them or so. Forgive me if the number's off. I don't remember exactly. But he said because there were twenty of us a couple days ago, and I looked at him and I said, "What happened?" He said we were up doing a mission, and one of the Afghani soldiers they were working with in a green-on-green green incident shot and killed. I think it was four of them, and wounded a bunch of other ones. Hmm. I I I I like I am now. I was. I, what do you say? I'm sorry, God. I don't. I didn't know what to say. I I I can't even imagine what it must have been like to be this military officer running this unit where he lost his men to what he thought was a friendly it was a devastating moment followed up only by an even you know worse moment for me emotionally when we went over to the hospital and and you know he was pinning these purple hearts on the survivors and you see these guys I mean in some really really awful condition it's devastating to watch it's not snowflakey all right folks there's some stuff that's just not funny SNL, you know, do the right thing. Step up, man. Don't make an apology because anybody demands it. Don't make an apology because it's the right thing to do. Come out. Listen, Pete Davidson lost his dad in 9-11. I, I'm Really, I'm not interested in a pylon right now. But Pete Davidson should come out and go, listen, sometimes in comedy you say something really stupid. This guy's a hero. I, You know what? It came out wrong. It was my mistake. Americans are very forgiving, even of liberal idiots like the writers at Saturday Night Live. They are. But just come out and say, we screwed up. It wasn't funny. And thanks to Dan Crenshaw, you know what? We're going to move on. It's not right, folks. I had an uncle who I never met, and I told you. He was killed in Vietnam. He was shot in the back. Gregory Ambrose. Never met the guy. He's killed in the back south of Thu Vietnam. Vietnam, trying to save his buddies. He's got the bronze star with a V cluster for his heroism. His story's amazing. Every Memorial Day, I put it up on my Facebook. You can read it yourself. My family was never the same after that. It was pre Greg and post Greg. He was a kid when he was shot. He was a kid. I don't mean emotionally, he was a man and an American hero. Chronologically, he was a kid. My grandmother never ever saw her son in his 40s. She died brokenhearted over that. It's not funny. It's not whatever, and it's not a joke. Just step up and do the right thing for once, huh? Nobody's demanding anything. We're just demanding a little bit of courage and dignity. All right, so uh, moving on. So much to get to. So there are a lot of ballot measures, folks, on the ballot tomorrow um, as well. Uh, I know we're getting uh, lost in a lot of the races and, uh, you know, the House candidates, Senate candidates, gubernatorial candidates. I put out some tweets with some candidates I think we should all get out and vote for. I I couldn't get to everyone, folks. I'm sorry. I just I'm trying my best here. You know, Um, you know, you got John James, you got uh, Bob Hugan up in New Jersey, uh, Marsha Blackburn, Rick Scott, Ron DeSantis. Uh, You got Brian Kemp in Georgia. You know, get out and vote. A bunch of them, you know, Heller out in Nevada. Uh, Just get out and vote. Do the right thing. We have to stand up and fight these guys. Uh, these, the, the, you know, the, the liberals. They, they, this will be a disaster if they win. It'll be impeachment investigations. It'll be a mess. Okay, but there are ballot measures on there as well that are really important. Um, I, I want to talk about a couple here. There's a there's a, a measure in Flagstaff, Arizona. Now, ah, wow, Dan, why are you bringing that up? This is a national show. Actually, it's an international show. But I bring it up because these issues relate to you. There's a ballot measure on Flagstaff, Arizona to repeal their minimum wage, at least as it was passed. Why? Because, folks, I have the article up at the show notes. I encourage you to read it because liberal economics fails every time. What have I told you over and over? The great irony of liberalism is it even hurts liberals. You vote conservative in liberty, it benefits conservatives and liberals. That's the irony. Long story short, the Washington Examiner piece describes it in more detail. If you're interested, Flagstaff, Arizona voted in uh, a minimum wage. They thought it was a great idea, $15 an hour, plus they indexed it to the state minimum wage, meaning it would have gone up even more. What happened, Joe? Businesses immediately decamped, left flagstaff, Arizona, and Mm -hmm. they talk about a really troubling story about a company, Joe, that provides services to disabled folks, uh, employs them and provides jobs to disabled folks, and these disabled folks are now out of jobs. They are out of jobs. Why? Because Flagstaff, Arizona decided it would be a good idea to implement a minimum wage. And one of the lines in it is great. They asked one of the companies what happened and the company said why they went out of business. They said, it's not that we didn't agree with the minimum wage. We just couldn't afford it. Sooner or later, economic reality kicks you in the face. So that's on the ballot. Also, one of the issues coming up in this, although not specifically on the ballot, but in voting for governors, it will be. Andrew Gillum, who's running for governor as a far left radical socialist down here in Florida. Uh, Stacey Abrams uh, running in, in um, uh, in, uh, in uh, excuse me, in Georgia. You have these far left candidates running on these Medicare for all type issues. Um, they're running all over the country. There's a number of governor's races where this happens. I mean, those are uh, local to me, Florida and Georgia, right in my region of the United States, right? They're running on things like Medicare for all. Folks, I have a great, great article, The Daily Signal up at the show notes today, talking about the cost for Medicare for all. Now, I've gone into the national costs. Liberal and conservative think tanks have both calculated this up to cost $32 trillion over 10 years. That's basically the entire federal budget over the next 10 years. But forgetting for a second the national costs, in other words, the federal level. Let's go to some state costs. Florida, where Gillum's running for governor and is one of these Medicare for all guys. He's a Bernie Sanders guy. Here it is folks. This is your wallet. These are real expenses. This isn't a joke. To implement uh, uh, excuse me, to implement a uh, Medicare for all in Florida. The state sales tax. Joe, this is a great one. The state sales tax would go from 6% to 39%. So Floridians, listen up. If Gillum gets his Medicare for all and you go in and you buy whatever, a new sofa, for $100, whatever. Just throwing even numbers out there. You were paying $6 in taxes. You are now going to pay $39 in taxes on that product. Now, times that by every purchase you make. Sound good? Kind of no, right? Maryland, another state I'm intimately familiar with, if they implement Medicare for All, it would cost $24 billion. You're like, oh, okay, that doesn't sound too bad. Yeah, except for the fact that the entire state budget is only $44 billion. That's more than half. Kind of an issue, nah? Huh? Oh, it goes on. North Carolina. Considering those socialists, Medicare for all surely means Medicare for none. Because that Medicare money be coming out of the people on Medicare now. It would cost $41.9 billion, double the costs of the current general fund expend- expenditures. $41.9 billion in North Carolina. In Vermont. Would cost $4.3 billion and a tax increase of 9.5% plus an additional 11.5% payroll tax. How do you like them apples? You like paying a 9.5% tax increase plus an additional 11.5% of your money? California. This is astonishing. It'd cost $400 billion and 200 billion in new taxes. Folks, this is serious stuff. There are some energy issues on the ballot in Nevada. Please look into choice in energy, energy in, the, uh, in in your energy choices in Nevada in Florida there is a, there are a number of ballot initiatives on about choosing about gambling and choosing uh these ballot initiatives are important do not forget down ballot races ladies and gentlemen this is where you can make a big difference and as it's going to be basically my last show before election day tomorrow let me just leave you with this there are doers and there are talkers i'm not i love you to death i mean it i opened my show saying that all you did for colin johnson and his family i adore you But please, God, and I'm not using the Lord's name in vain. We are in a critical time in American history right now. Every election is important, not just the Trump election. Please, I'm begging you to do. Do not talk. Talk does not change the world. I love what I do, but if it doesn't motivate you to action, everything we've been discussing for the last three years we've been doing this is absolutely useless. Please, please get out there and vote. My ballot is in. Get online, get online tomorrow, get online early. Do not get off that line no matter what until that lever is pulled or that box is checked. The country needs you right now. This generation, we've had, We listen, for all our problems, we still have it very good. You had the Valley Forge generation eating shoe lever for the survival of the Republic. We're not asking much. Please go out there. If you have to take time off from work and do it, please show up. Just remember this one last thing, and I'll let you go. I'm sorry, but I, I have to, this is so important, folks. Turnout is everything. They are expecting turnout to be typical midterm turnout, which depending on the state, when you get like 80% of registered voters turn out for a presidential, in a lot of states it's 50, sometimes even below that. If Republican voters turn out in a model similar similar to the presidential election, I know it's a lot to ask. Folks, I'm telling you, we will keep the House, we will add to the Senate, we will take back some of these governorships, we will hold some of the governorships we have, and we will be sitting there on Wednesday morning saying, yes! We did something. We did something. We drew a line in the sand and we said no more. As Mark Levin said, if you're tired of being called a racist, misogynist, transphobe, homophobe, Islamophobe, and every other disgusting, derogatory term in the book, when you have nothing but love for your fellow Americans, big L love for your fellow Americans, this is your time to get up and do, do. No more talk. The talk is over. The campaigning is done. It's time to get on that line and pull that lever, please. You just heard the Dan Bongino Show.